Friends, let us pray. Eternal God, help us to hear your word today. Open our lives to your transforming spirit that we may be living testaments to your great love for the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's gospel reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Hear these words of the gospel. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few days ago, in a video call in preparation for revamping our church website, Rachel Norton and I listened to the web designer tell us a story about his friend, Pastor Jay. Now, long before he was a pastor, Jay had always loved people. As a youngish adult, he got a handful of folks together to study the Bible, to study scripture, and they formed a small church. Now, Pastor Jay hadn't gone to seminary or done any formal ministry training, but he was a dynamic individual with a magnetic personality. Pastor Jay and the folks just really focused on loving people, and this church began to grow exponentially. And in the course of just a few years, the church thrived. It grew to more than a thousand people, and then thousands and thousands as people flocked to hear Pastor Jay. Then our storyteller, told us the story of a church that prided itself on its history and its quality programs and its building. Which church story do you want to tell, he asked. Now, I am always wary of churches that revolve around a single leader with an outsized personality and too much power and too little education. I don't particularly trust them. And it was clear to me that Pastor Jay's church was a mega church, led by a mega pastor with a mega message, a place with bad theology that would fall apart because everything revolved around its singular charismatic leader. 
the kind of church progressive Christians like us often disparage. Well, guess what? I fell right into the storyteller's trap. The Pastor Jay that he was talking about, not a megachurch pastor, not a money-seeking prosperity gospel promoter. Pastor Jay was Jesus, who had gathered his small group of followers, which continued to grow so much that even the Roman government eventually felt threatened. You see, I jumped to conclusions. I listened to the story with my preconceived biases. I made quick assumptions, and I sat there smugly thinking, oh, that's not me, that's not us, we are Presbyterians. (laughs) We definitely don't get sucked in by what's shiny and bright. parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple is one that hits way too close to home. It makes me squirm. For in Jesus' day, the Pharisees as a whole had a noble purpose, even a compassionate one. They were not bad people, nor were they simply rule followers for rule's sake. Contrary to a popular stereotype, they were the good guys or they at least tried to be. They took the law of Moses seriously because they knew that the whole point of the Torah was for people to encounter God in a meaningful way. They made it possible for people who couldn't make it to the temple to still observe Torah from home. The Pharisees were the ones who gave people practical ways that they could follow the law of Moses and experience the holiness of God. We might call those spiritual practices. And this Pharisee did them all. He fasted twice a week all year long. He outfasted those among us who fast only during Lent. And he tithed generously 10% of his income. If he visited our Kenyan partner church, he would have been the very first one to walk up to the big, bright, blue tithe box that sits in the front of their sanctuary. I saw it in pictures. He would be the first to pay up his pledge. Hmm, there's an idea for Rachel. A big blue tithe box. Just kidding. The problem with this particular Pharisee isn't that he was legalistic. After all, Jesus did all those same things. As an observant Jew, Jesus fasted and he tithed. And the problem wasn't that this man was a Pharisee. The problem was that he fell into the trap of comparison. He compared himself with the tax collector who came to worship that day And he found himself exceptional. It was easy to do because tax collectors in those days collaborated in a corrupt system. They contracted with the Romans to collect taxes for assigned districts. But the deal was they had to pay those 
districts required tax assessment in advance. And then afterwards, they would go around to collect from the households. And they could do so any way they wanted. They could even add a percentage on top of the original tax assessment in hopes of making a profit. Imagine a modern-day collection agency badgering you and coming after you by any means possible to get you to pay up. That was him. So you can imagine this particular Pharisee in this corner and the tax collector way back there in the far corner, and you can see the Pharisee mentally go through his comparative checklist, and as he does, you can imagine him growing more and more disdainful of that tax collector. I fast, he doesn't. I pledge, and a hefty 10% of my income at that. He not only doesn't even pledge, he takes people's hard-earned money away from them. I am sure glad I am not like him. In our present day, religiously, and politically polarized context, today's story gets extremely personal. It does hit way too close to home, for we have got this comparison thing down pat. We show up to worship and we pull our weight. They don't. We do and believe the right things. They don't. We call out injustice when we see it. They don't, because they don't even see it. We eat properly sourced food. We've, we're environmentally conscious. We support the right candidates. Make those comparisons enough times and pretty soon what began as a well-intentioned conviction over a real and compelling issue morphs into pride, into how superior our beliefs are. And then it even slips into out-and-out contempt for our fellow human beings. They become those people. And sometimes they're even our family members. In the midst of our serious disagreements, they have become less than in our eyes. It is a rare and hard thing to be truly humble. And now I am not talking about the humble brag. You know, I am so humble because I got this great honor. But true and deep and honest humility. An article by Benedict Carey in the New York Times this past week actually bears this out with some research suggested that only 10 to 15% of adults score highly on measures of humility. I don't even know what the correlation is with people of religious faith. Now, you and I know that comparing oneself to others cuts both ways. For while it leads to pride and an exaggerated sense of self-importance for some, for others, it can descend into self-loathing. And the tax collector had plenty about himself to despise. He took advantage of his neighbors, and they hated him. 
For some of us religious folks, as Karl Barth has suggested, pride is our chief shortcoming. For others, it's self-hatred. I'm looking at this section of the sanctuary in particular. I think of the pressures that you youth and young adults especially face. Pressures like body shaming, fashion shaming, gender shaming, social media shaming, all multiplied and magnified at warp speed in cyberspace. No doubt you know someone who feels so much pain from self-loathing that they will harm themselves in other ways to escape that pain. No doubt you know someone who cannot see themselves as a whole person deserving of dignity and love. You probably know someone who thinks they have screwed up so badly that it's impossible to find their way back. Maybe it's even you, or you, or you, or you. Now Jesus' story doesn't tell us what brought the tax collector to the temple to pray that day, or what caused him to recognize his need for God's mercy. Maybe he compared himself to that Pharisee who looked like he had it all together, who did all the right things. Maybe that was why he could see that he could never measure up on his own. And ironically, maybe that Pharisee was even an unwitting agent, enabling the tax collector to recognize his need for God and for him to return home as one justified. Now, there's a good word for Reformation Sunday, justified. John Calvin called justification the main hinge on which religion turns. A long, long time ago, I was taught that to be justified meant to be made just as if you'd never sinned. And I still think it's a pretty good definition. In other words, through God's work of justification, we are restored to right relationship with God. And one of the great legacies of our Protestant Reformation forefathers and mothers is the renewed emphasis on being made right in God's eyes by God's grace through faith. It is totally God's doing, a gift to us. And it means that we have, every one of us, already been loved and accepted by God just as if we had never done anything wrong. It means that God deals with all of our brokenness and even all of our guilt and frees us to become something that we could not be otherwise. The Pharisee in Jesus' parable tried to justify himself and gain God's recognition and approval by all of the good things that he did. Now, it's not that he shouldn't have done them. Of course he should. But in that moment, at least, that moment that he prayed in the temple, 
He couldn't recognize his dependence on God and God's grace alone. Maybe he did later on, I hope so. The parable doesn't say. For God's grace does indeed transcend the human boundaries that we would place around it. But in that moment, the Pharisee just didn't see it. Whether we identify with him or with the tax collector, both pride and self-loathing maintain that chasm, that, that gap that separates us from God and one another. As Matthew Skinner says, the whole parable exposes our brokenness. And, even more importantly, it brings to light the mercy of God that is deep and broad and high, that leaves those who experience it to return home finally freed from their burdens, freed to live as God's beloved. God's mercy and God's grace is for all, the pride-filled and the despised, the one who has it all together, and the one who doesn't even know where to begin. How, Skinner asks, shall we pray to this wildly merciful God? How shall we live, having learned of such boundless mercy? How shall I pray? Ted Loder has written. Are tears prayers, Lord? Are screams prayers or groans or sighs or curses? Can trembling hands be lifted to you? Or clenched fists or the cold sweat that trickles down my back? Or the cramps that knot my stomach? Will you accept my prayer, Lord, my real prayers, rooted in the muck and mud and rock of my life, and not just my pretty cut flower, gracefully arranged bouquet of words? Will you accept me, Lord, as I really am, messed up, mixture of glory and grime? Lord, help me, Loder continues. Help me to trust that you do accept me as I am, that I may be done with self-condemnation and self-pity and accept myself. Help me to accept you as you are, Lord, mysterious, hidden, strange, unknowable, and yet to trust that your madness is wiser than my timid, self-seeking sanities and that nothing you've ever done has really been possible. So I may dare to be a little mad too. God's mercy is indeed for everyone. So how shall we pray to this wildly merciful God? And then how shall we live? Amen. <laughs>